Uh, you can have your Bibles handy. We are stepping into a little bit of a, uh, what I described this morning as a mini-series. Um, I had intended, as I said this morning, to give just a message or two on this idea of how to love the brethren. Uh, but that's changed a little bit. As I was writing this week, I felt uh, a very heavy weight that it, we, we needed to go a little bit deeper. As I was trying to jam into one sermon all of uh, Romans 12 and all of... Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and I was thinking through this, saying I'm just going to summarize these things. I thought, well, no, actually, I think we need a bit more of this, that as we have this entire epistle that has been calling us to love the brethren and saying without, with, in no uncertain terms that if you do not love the brethren, then the love of the Father is not in you, that we need to really take some time to think through this idea of loving the brethren. The, throughout the epistle of 1 John, the evangelist has been using a love for the brethren as a definitive test of claims of walking with the Lord, of walking in the Spirit, of abiding in Christ, rooted in John's warnings about false teachers who were in their midst, who came out from them but were not of them and were teaching them things which were actually anti-Christ, leading the brethren away from truth. But a question has lingered from the beginning, which again I've chosen to wait until the end to answer. And I don't know if that was the best choice. Maybe I should have begun with the answer to this question. But on this, on, on topics like this, I am put into a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem when it comes to, to things like this. When we read in 1 John all of these exhortations to love the brethren, and we see glimmers of what that means, but we're going to have to broaden our scope of biblical teaching in order to really get the idea of what it means to love the brethren. Goals to accomplish, each to some degree, possibly dependent upon the other to be successful. So throughout the series, the scriptures have impressed upon you this vital importance. Love the brethren. But I haven't yet really given you what that looks like, apart from the natural working of the Holy Spirit in your heart, in your own time, where you read the Word of God. And uh, perhaps as you've read the Word of God over these months that we've been talking on these things, the Lord has highlighted and emphasized in your heart manner, the manner of, of how you can do that. But I haven't really, I haven't really focused on it. But I've given you little insight into how John's exhortations and warnings should come about. Now, the other ways I could have approached this series are really two, if I, as I'm thinking about it. I could have begun with the how, so that as you received all of these exhortations to love the brethren, everything that I had already taught about how to do it would come flooding back to you. The problem with this, however, is that the how messages... If you give the how messages before the why messages, a lot of people don't really care about the how until they know the why. Why should I love the brethren? Why are you telling me all of the how to love the brethren? I don't really want to love the brethren. And it's not until you get the why messages, why do you need to love the brethren, that then you say, oh, I really need to love the brethren. And then you say, okay, now how do I do it? Now I'm listening, right? So I could have given the how before the why, but that seems in some cases to put the cart before the horse. The other way I could have done this is to give you the how right after our first message on the why. The why and the how together, which was at this point several months ago. But had I done that, then the remaining messages, I believe, on the why, because he continues to talk about loving the brethren, might have become a little redundant to us, lessening the impact of the repetition which John is so intentionally using 
and employing in this epistle. So for better or worse, here we are today. We've gotten through all the why, and now we're here on the how. And again, I was just going to do a message or two on this, but I think we need a full mini-series because the topic is just that important. It is, in fact, transcendent. It is the essence of the Christian life, and it deserves the time that it takes for us to fully invest ourselves in it as such. So over the course of this mini-series, we're going to consider four general topics, and those general topics are the principle of divine example, the principle of need, the principle of truth, and the principle of the weaker brethren. Each of these helping us understand how it is that we love the brethren. What does the Bible tell us about what loving the brethren looks like? But even before we get to these four principles, which we'll consider over the weeks that are to come, I want to talk about one other thing. I want to help us orient ourselves to the question of who. Got a good question last week. And it actually kind of became the impetus for me as I was rewriting some of this and gearing up for it. Who's, who, who are the brethren? Is my obligation in what John says is the kind of depth of emphasis that we find in 1 John? Is that reserved for certain brethren? Anyone who might possibly call himself a brother? That guy who is on the street who says, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a believer. Do we have the same level of investment and degree and care for every person from those who are directly in our family or directly in our church and those who are in the churches across the way who claim Christ or those who claim Christ in our neighborhood or those who don't claim Christ at all, which goes a little bit beyond the brethren, right? We know, we know they aren't the brethren. Who are the brethren? And I want to give you a perspective on this tonight and to help you think through so that as we are working on the how, you have the confidence to know what this ought to look like among those with whom you interact. So we find in Scripture various concepts of order. I hope that's readable. It looks pretty good. Various concepts of order, what I might call gradations when it comes to interactions with people. When Jesus ministered, the Bible tells us he chose 12 disciples to follow him. Out of all of those who may have said, come and follow me, he chose 12. Now, what we also find is that of those 12, there were actually only three that Jesus fully invested in, that being Peter, James, and John. We call Peter, James, and John Jesus's inner three. And so he had these inner three. And if you recall from your readings through the New Testament, through the Gospels, there were several occasions where Jesus would take his 12 and he would settle down Hit the, uh, uh, somewhere, whether that's to pray, say in the Garden of Gethsemane, or whether that was uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he would, he would take the, the twelve and he would put the nine in a spot and he would take those three, Peter, James, and John, and he would go further up the mountain, deeper into the garden. And then he would set those three deeper in the garden and, and then after he set those three in the garden, then he would go deeper into the garden still and alone he would pray. Or, of course, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he would be transfigured, and Peter, James, and John were there. The other nine were not. 
even though they were his 12, there were still gradations of fellowship and investment that Jesus had. Now, beyond the 12, we can then perhaps think of the 70 that were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Beyond those 70, we might think of the 500 who were there after Jesus rose from the dead and he went into Galilee and taught them. That was before Pentecost, but uh, that, that, that larger group that he taught in Galilee for those days before his ascension into heaven. All of these are levels, degrees, gradations of intimacy where we find that Jesus invested the most in those three. Then 12, then 70, then 500. And we see a very similar idea when Jesus told his followers or commanded his followers following, uh, or just before he ascended into heaven, excuse me. Just before he ascended, ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So Jesus told his followers that as they witness, they would witness in Jerusalem and Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. So that when Paul spoke of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, as we think through both of these analogies, the analogy of the three and the twelve and the seventy and the five hundred, or this idea of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth, neither one of these is gradations of value. This is not to say that the gospel that was preached to the uttermost part of the earth was an inferior gospel to that which was preached to Judea or Jerusalem. It is not to say that Jesus loved less the twelve than he did the inner three. Or to say that Jesus was not as interested in the seventy as the twelve. That would be a misunderstanding of the idea here. But what we are talking about is priority. What we are talking about is amount of investment. We cannot invest in everybody equally. There's not enough time in the day. There's not enough energy in these little bodies of ours. However, there is an opportunity for us to invest strategically. And we invest strategically along a few different bounds. Now, as this principle, as we think through this principle, the question is, how does this carry over into Christian lives and the idea of loving the brethren. And I'd like to talk about that as we find these principles in the Bible. And it begins with Jesus' teachings in the Gospels regarding that great Old Testament concept, love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor, one of the two great commandments in the Scriptures. Of this, we have a rather well-known parable found in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, the Bible says this, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, that would be Jesus, saying, Master, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. So now when Jesus is speaking to a lawyer here, when we think of lawyers today, we think of a person who is well-versed in the law. Right, then that's what a lawyer is. Now, remember, however, in the New Testament what the law was. The law was not just a legal civil system. The law was the law of Moses. So this lawyer was not just well-versed in civil litigation. He was not well-versed in bankruptcy law. Those are not the kinds of things he was working on. This man knew the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, in and out. He knew them and he knew them well. This was a man who understood the Old Testament scriptures. The, under, the Old Testament scriptures were his profession. It was his life. And so he asks Jesus this great question here. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And he's tempting him here. So this is, this is intended to be a gotcha. This is intended to be a lawyer who does what a lawyer does and thinks he's got it all under, you know, he's got it all figured out because he's been studying this his whole life. And now he is going to back Jesus into a corner. And Jesus says, well, you're a lawyer. What's written in the law? And he accurately he accurately expounds what is written in the law. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy might, thy strength, thy mind, and love thy neighbor as thyself. So Jesus says in verse 28, he said unto him, thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. So the lawyer's feeling pretty good now, good, 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 but he's a lawyer, right? He parses things out for a living. So he says, aha, verse 29, but he willing to justify himself, he wants to justify himself. He wants to show that he is able to do this thing, that he can live up to the standard that God has laid out for him. Obviously, he loves God, right? They all love God with all their heart, soul, and might. But then he asks this question, okay, in order that I might live up to the standard, who is my neighbor? And Jesus immediately answers and falls into a parable. It's what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. So in verse 30, Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wrought, and excuse me, and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Alright, so there's a man, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. What that means is he is of Judea, he's a Jew. And he is going from one, one city in Judea to another city in Judea where he is robbed and he is stripped naked and he is left half dead. So he's lying on the road half dead. That's our scenario. Verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by him on the other side. So a priest, the great arbiters of the temple, the ones who are to teach people the law of God, the, 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 the moral the moral leaders of the country. He comes and he sees this man half dead lying on the ground, a fellow brother, a Jew, and he goes to the other side and he walks by him. And he goes on his way, leaving this half dead man still half dead on the road. Verse 32, And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. So a Levite comes. The Levite are the family that of the priest. They are the ones who served in the temple. They are the ones who are of God's chosen tribe to be the Lord is their inheritance. 
and he sees this half-dead brother, this Jew, who like him is a Jew, lying half-dead on the road, and he goes to the other side and goes around him and moves on his way. Then verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. So we finish this scenario. And as we finish this parable, this scenario, up comes a Samaritan. Now, of course, this is where we need to understand the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. The Samaritans were a group of people who were, uh, whose origin was in the fall of the northern tribes of Israel in 720, 7-ish, 700, 720, 740, somewhere around there B.C., And at that time, the northern ten tribes of Israel, which had split from the southern two tribes of Judah, at that time, those northern tribes of Israel were conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, other than just being brutal and killing many, many people when they conquered them, one of their common strategies for making sure that the people would never revolt is that they would take the natives from that land and they would intermarry them with Assyrians specifically to break down their cultural distinctions so that they would not then have the cultural um, uh, distinctions necessary to really want to revolt, right? You'd never see an Israeli flag flying over an Assyrian-owned area after the Assyrians had conquered it because they had tried to intermingle them. However, this didn't fully work for the Assyrians. And the reason why this didn't fully work is when the Assyrians moved into the land of Israel, the Bible says that God sent lions into the land to kill all the people. And so the people were being absolutely overcome and they said, we don't understand the gods. The Assyrians said, we don't, we don't get it. We don't get the gods of this land. These gods obviously will not simply be appeased by our normal sacrifices. So they called Israelis, the, the, the northern Jews there. They weren't Jews. They were Israelis, right? The Jews are from Judah. But they called them back to the land to teach them their ways, to teach them the distinctives of their God. Now, if, if you know that the, the worship system in Israel was already a compromised worship system. From the days of Jeroboam, it had been a golden calf worship system that had intermingled Egyptian golden calf worship, the Baal worship from Ahab's day, along with Jehovah worship. So it was already a compromised system, and yet God used this unique, this, this unique circumstance to actually preserve a, the, the nature of the Israeli culture in that region even though that region was supposed to be utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, as time goes on, and we learned about this in the intertestamental series, of which I'll probably do again at some point, as time goes on, those people end up becoming a, a group of people again, a group of people that actually reinstituted that hybrid worship system, some Jehovah, some Baal, some golden calf, and they were a group that by the time of the days of Nehemiah and Ezra were... The Samaritans. They weren't called that yet in Nehemiah and Ezra, but they were them. And the Jews hated them because they were half-breeds. They were tainted. They weren't pure bloods. They had been tainted with Assyrian blood. 
And so the Jews considered them unclean. And because of various things that happened within the time period between Malachi and Matthew, specifically when the zeal of certain high priests who led the nation uh, became uh, particularly zealous, they would go into Mount Gerizim, they would go into the Samaritans, they would burn their temple to the ground. And so the Samaritans had reason to hate the Jews too. These people hated each other. And that gives you, they were, they were racist and bigoted and everything against each other. And that gives you the context for why it might be a little bit shocking when Jesus says, a priest came, saw that guy half dead, that Jew half dead, and said, I don't want any part of that. And a Levite came and saw that Jew half dead and said, nope, don't want a part of that. And then a Samaritan came. Saw that Jew half dead. The one in that group who we, would sit, who we would expect to look and say, good, boot. And just give him another kick for good measure. But he didn't. Instead, what does the Bible say he did? The Bible says that he bound up his wounds. And he poured oil and wine. Uh, he gave him oil and, and wine. And he set him on his own beast. The Samaritan got down off of his beast and put this wounded man on his beast. And he walked that wounded man to an inn. And he put that wounded man into a bed. And he cared for that wounded man until he could not, he had to depart. And on the next day when he needed to depart, he went up to the man who owned that inn and he gave him money. And he said, use this money to care for that man until that man is well. And if this money is not enough to cover it, you use your own money to do whatever it takes until this man is well. And the next time I come, I'll give you however much more you need in order to settle the account for this man to be healed and to be on his way. And that's the scenario. And then Jesus says in verse 36, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him who fell among the thieves? Verse 37, and he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then, Jesus, then said Jesus unto him, go and do likewise. Then go love your neighbor. Go love your neighbor as yourself. And that was, of course, the correct answer that the lawyer gave. Love thy neighbor. Our neighbor is those within our proximity who find themselves in need. But as we have seen before, this doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't natural gradations in our priorities and in our interactions. We are called to love as Christ loved, and his love was poured out upon all men. When he fed the multitudes, his miraculous power benefited all who were there that day. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and everyone benefited from the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. When Jesus came across a blind man or a lame man, he poured out his mercy on those who humbly asked it of him. But as we consider, even though Jesus fed the multitudes, that 5,000, even though Jesus healed the blind man and the lame man and the leprous man, yet we still find his fullest investment in a very small subset of the larger group. And the same is true of the church. We have this call, love thy neighbor as thyself. But then we find an instruction of Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where he said this. 
He says, as we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men. That's love thy neighbor as thyself. But notice then what he says. Especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Notice this heightening here. It's not really a qualification. It's more of a heightening. As the opportunity arises, do good unto all men. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Who is thy neighbor? Thy neighbor is the person around you who has a need. But also, especially them who are of the household of faith. Have a mind and a heart of love for all. But there are those who, due to proximity, faithfulness, and opportunity, ought to have a higher priority as you make decisions regarding who it is to pour your love unto. So then how do these principles play out in our Christian life? Let me give you a loose example. And I say a loose example because people's situations are different. Hopefully this example will be used of the Holy Spirit to direct your heart into clarity on this matter, to help you uh, iron out your thoughts. Uh, Please don't take this as gospel. I am putting this out there as a thing to think about. If we're going to give gradations of love, well, we're not going to give gradations of love. But if we're going to give gradations of how to express our time and our love, how to do good unto men, the Bible is unambiguous that our highest priority are those who are a part of the Christian fellowship or the church. Now, in the case of Legacy Baptist Church, we would call this our membership. Right, Those who have joined themselves in membership to the church, those who have validated their faith through fruit and have also chosen to bind themselves in service and accountability one to another, they have my highest priority. And this has happened a couple of times before where there have been conflicts between uh, various people in the, in the church or there have, been, there have been times where somebody has said, hey, pastor, this happened, and someone else said, hey, pastor, that happened, and I will... All things being equal, stand with those who have bound themselves to the membership. Because you're you're my family. We have bound ourselves to each other. And that's right, and that's proper, and that's good. They command my highest priority. If I have to prioritize, my church family gets priority number one. Those unto whom we have bound ourselves in love and accountability. Well, then we extend to others, right? Brethren with fruit. We extend it to those. Maybe they don't go to my church. Maybe they're connected to other churches or ministries around the world who bear the marks of true faith. But they bear those marks of faith. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I extend my priority and my care to them. Then I extend that to those perhaps who claim to be brethren, but of whom I don't yet know their fruit. Professing brethren. I'm not saying that that they are those who uh, don't bear fruit. We typically lot those in with the unbeliever if they don't bear fruit. But maybe I don't know yet. Maybe I haven't met them. Maybe I haven't seen that which is necessary to see. Someone comes and they say, hey, I'm a brother in Christ. Uh, I I have a need. And, and, And I might elevate that particularly because they are claiming to be a brother in Christ. But they will not claim the kind of trust or investment as those who bear definitive fruit in my life or those unto whom I am bound formally. And then finally, the unbeliever, unto whom we also love just as we would love another. Remember, I am not giving you here gradations of love. Jesus did not, did not call us to change our gospel between Judea 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the same gospel. It's just a different priority. I'm not saying love the unbeliever less. The Bible doesn't say love the unbeliever less. But if I am going to prioritize my investment and my care, I'm going to heighten those who are of the household of faith. We are not talking about gradations of treatment where you treat your inner circle well and you treat the outer circle poorly. Uh Uh-uh, don't do that. Every person in this scenario will receive God's love through you. Every person on that list. This is simply the natural gradation of investment and love where you make yourself, you invest most in and therefore make yourself most vulnerable to the household of faith. And this is really where this comes in. See, because the the conflict is this. If I pour myself into everybody in the same manner, same priority, the same way, well, see, I trust my family here so that as I pour into you the fullness of my investment, I can trust that you're not going to take advantage of me. I can't do that to just anyone on the street. And that's not because I'm cynical, but it is because I'm not blind, deaf, dumb, and two years old. I know that I cannot invest in everyone the same manner that I invest in you. I know that, and you know that. Then what do we do with this idea, love the brethren? What do I do when I just meet someone and he says, I'm a brother in Christ? Am I supposed to invest in him blindly the same way I invest in you who I know and who I've prayed for and who have prayed for me and who we have committed ourselves one to another? Well, if the Lord lays it on my heart, absolutely. However, there are gradations of commitment. And as you work yourself out toward those both who you don't know and, and, and who reflect uh, uh, professing believers, but you don't know of their fruit, you're going to need to protect yourself more, maybe not be quite as vulnerable to them and have them in a lower priority in that scale than those whom God has placed closest to you. And remember, I said this is a general template, and I said that for a reason. Don't allow what I've said to become law to you. This is intended to bring you into consideration, not to set definitive guidelines. If you live near near a, a dear old man who is a complete pagan, but God has laid it upon your heart to minister to him and to show him your love in a unique way, don't say, well, pastor says I have to love the brethren more than him. Therefore, I'm going to not invest in him as much because I haven't invested that much in in my brother in the church. Don't, Don't do that. If the Lord lays a dear old man on your heart who's a total pagan and you need, to, you need to love and care for him, his wife is dead, his family doesn't care about him, you invest in that old man. You invest as you ought to invest in him. Again, we're not talking about gradations of love here. That's not the idea. That's not my intent. And while the Bible makes our obligation to one, other in, one another in the church abundantly clear, the Spirit of God will lay on your heart Others, and that is good, and that is natural, and nothing to be refused. So this is a general model, and it's a model that I'm giving to you because it's a model that we see generally manifested in both naturally in human interaction as well as in the Bible. As we see Jesus have his three, and then his 12, and then the 70, 
probably a part of the 70, would have been Martha and Mary and Lazarus. These unto whom he was very close. He still wept over Lazarus when Lazarus died. He still took great care for Mary and for Martha. But they weren't one of the 12. They weren't one of the three. They didn't see Jesus transfigured. They weren't there in the garden with him, supporting him, supposed to be at least. And so we see this. This is natural. So we've seen Jesus' call. Love thy neighbor as myself. Who is my neighbor? It is all of those in my proximity with a need. Then we've seen Paul say, do good unto all men. Absolutely. As the opportunity arises and the idea there is in, in its proper season, as you see the right time, do good to all men, but especially those who are of the household of faith. Now let's add a few more more layers directly from Scripture. And and these layers are both going to be rooted in Timothy, but I want to start with James chapter 1, verse 27. James says this, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So James speaks here about this idea of pure religion. The concept of religion in the Bible, is that of a ritual or a ceremonial observance. Something that you do regularly, an observance that you establish in your life in order to, uh, to keep you in a right relationship with God. Religion is not the end goal. Religion is the structure you put in your life to draw you to the goal. So in many other systems, religion is the goal. In order to be right with God, they say you have to do this, do this, do this, do this. That's religion, and religion is their goal. We do not see religion as our goal. Our goal is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But we might utilize religious principles to keep us close, to keep that relationship close, such as religiously going to church. That is a religious thing that we do. It is a ritualistic observance that we do in order to keep us close to one another and keep us close to Christ. Reading your Bible every day, praying every day. Those are religious observances that you do as a means by which to preserve and indeed heighten your relationship with God. So you do those things. Maybe you give regularly. That's a religious observance that you do as a part of making sure that by virtue of you giving, you are acknowledging to God your trust in Him and your thankfulness for what He's given to you. These are all religious observances. But James said that pure religion, pure and undefiled religion, falls into two primary categories. The first, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. The first aspect of pure religion is to build into our lives the habits and frameworks necessary to ensure the consistent care among us of the weak and of the vulnerable. And that's the idea here of the fatherless and the widows, the widows and the orphans. Now again, in our age and in our time, things are a little different. And the difference is is that we have this public safety net and women, widows, are able to work So they were not under the same kind of vulnerable conditions that they would have been in biblical days where they could not have just gone to work. That's not how it worked with women. The the professions for women were uh, unvirtuous and, and few in that day. And so things were different, and we understand that. But the principle is this, that there are these children that don't have parents, and there are these women who don't have husbands. And they are weak and vulnerable because of that, and they need to be cared for. And 
uh, we talk about the great Lyndon Johnson's great society. The welfare state has actually done more to weaken the church than probably just about anything. Because now nobody comes to the church in that time of need. They go to the state. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be our job to care for the widows and the orphans. It's pure religion that's undefiled. But then we see a second aspect to pure religion. That's to keep himself unspotted from the world. The second aspect of pure religion is to build into our lives the habits and framework necessary to ensure consistent separation from sin and from wickedness. And this is where religion is supposed to be rooted. Things to keep us, to the, the, the framework necessary to help those in need and the framework necessary to stay separated from the world. We want to build those things into our lives because those things reflect true, pure religion. Now, of those two, it's the first one that I want to focus on as it relates to this idea of loving the brethren. Visiting the fatherless and the widows. And this takes us to 1 Timothy chapter 5, where we see this particularly focused on the widows. Not, not so much orphans in this case, but the widows. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, the Bible says this. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth, and these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house... He has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Now we find here a charge to the church. And the charge for the church is to be, is to care for widows indeed. And once again here, we see a natural gradation where the church is called to care for believing widows, but only a specific subset of the believing widows. And that would be those who are widows indeed. And a widow indeed is, is considered a woman who, first, naturally her husband has died. Second, her family is unwilling to care for her. And third, she is actually a faithful sister in Christ. She is not one who is going to, be, uh, who's going to use her widowhood to gossip and to, 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 uh, to dedicate her days to lack of virtue. But a woman who is willing to dedicate herself to the Lord, whose family has abandoned her, and whose husband has died. That is what the Bible considers a widow indeed. And I remind you, the widows of that day, they could not necessarily simply care for themselves. Within the context of the day, Paul is saying that it is the first and foremost natural responsibility of blood family to care for their own. And only when the blood family is either unable or unwilling to care for a woman should then the church take over. With Paul saying here in verse 8, specifically related to those who are believers and unwilling to care for their own family, that those who refuse to care for their own family have denied the faith that they claim to hold and are worse than infidels. Now, since 2001 in the United States, the word infidel has taken on an Islamic connotation. However, the word is not Islamic in nature. It's a natural English word that simply means one who is actively denying their faith. And biblically, this would speak of one who claims Christ, but in works is denying Christ. Now, how can one be worse than an infidel? Well, we've actually seen it in 1 John. There are those who claim Christ, but in works they're denying him. 
But what have we seen in 1 John 2 about those false teachers? They are not just those who deny Christ. They are those who are anti-Christ. And so we do see that there is something that is worse than an infidel. And those that are worse than infidel are those who are actually anti-Christ. They're anti-faith. Not just denying the faith, but they're anti-faith. Paul says that those who would not care for those of their own house are those who are worse than infidels. In opposition to, not just in denial of, the faith. Okay, so then let's round out our teaching here. Hmm, that did not convert well. My apologies to that. Hopefully it's uh, the vulnerable, the needy, and blood family brethren there. Church brethren. Hmm. The extra two rounding out are the vulnerable and the needy and blood family. We're called to love our neighbor, those in proximity. Who is our neighbor? The entire circle is our neighbors. Even those whom in our culture we would call our enemies, like the Samaritan to the Jews. We find our enemy lying on the ground, battered and bruised. He is our neighbor. We love him. We love those who we're not supposed to like. Our culture tells us not to like certain types of people. Love them anyway. God isn't a respecter of persons, nor should we be a respecter of persons. Christ poured out his love on all men, and so too should we. But while, as we have opportunity to love, falls on all men, we are also called in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, to prioritize, as it were, those who are of the household of faith. And within that, we can speak of gradations ourselves. From those who are true believers in our church, where we have bound ourselves together one to another, to those who are true believers in our proximity, who, um, whether physically or as it relates to uh, other churches and ministries of like faith and practice, who we know are believers and who we desire to invest in. Next week, we're going to have a missionary family here, and we would put them into our proximity of brethren with fruit. Those who we have a testimony of their fruit and of their love for the Lord, and as we interact with them, their fruit should become immediately apparent. If it's not immediately apparent, we're actually going to bump them to professing brethren. But we hope that that will not be the case, that we will see the fruit necessary uh, based upon their testimony and and everything that we have already done. Nathaniel and I have done our due diligence uh, to to make sure that, that the people that come are people who, to the best of our knowledge and our ability, are people who are approved. And so we will do good to them within that proximity. And then, of course, to those who are professing brethren, we cannot validate their faith. And then finally, to the unbeliever, who we afford all human dignity and love in every right right way as the opportunity presents itself, but to whom I will not necessarily make myself or my family vulnerable in the way I will toward my church. And now we added these couple more layers. First, we add that layer of blood family, which Paul says, by God's design, is our responsibility. For if a man does not care for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel. And so we take care of our family. That as a widow would be expected, it would be fully expected that any believer in the church whose mother has just had her husband die would take care of her for the rest of her life a son or daughter, that they would take care of their parents for the rest of their lives. And then second, we find those believers in our midst who are needy and vulnerable. So we have have this group of believers into whom we pour. 
And we elevate in our estimation within this group the widows and the orphans. And that being not just explicitly widows and orphans, but all of those who are needy and vulnerable. And they become the highest priority in our midst. Now, you most certainly could quibble with me about where I've placed the order of those things, especially since the order is like unintelligible in the way that that ended up. It's not what I intended, I'm sorry. You could, you could quibble with me, though, about where, I, where we placed them. Some would say, nope, church family above blood family, pastor, every time. Others would say, blood family above church family, every time, blood's thicker than water. We might add layers of vulnerable and needy unbelievers somewhere higher than perhaps even professing brethren. If I see a vulnerable and needy unbeliever, I'll probably prioritize them over just some uh, professing brother who I don't know. We We can quibble on all of those gradations. Again, I did not give you this as some sort of, the Bible says this exactly thing. Only to get you thinking about what love looks like. And to help perhaps maybe alleviate some of the pressure when it comes to what does it mean to love the brethren? Who is that? To what amount do I invest? How, how, how much, we'll use the word pressure, the, the right kind of divine biblical need, how much urgency should I have in my heart to help that person who says they're a believer, but I can't see it? Am I really supposed to make myself as vulnerable to him and pour into him in the same way I would? to my brothers and sisters who are sitting here with me this evening? Well, no, not necessarily. That's not really what we see in the scriptures. That's not really how it plays out as the Bible has, has exemplified it. There is that inner core. We are that inner core. This is where we place our highest priority of investment. One to another, binding ourselves together, investing in one another, prioritizing one another so that the next time we're together as we walk through the various commands, we'll begin next week in 1 Corinthians 13. And by the way, as we think through from this point on, we're not going to add unbelievers to that mix because in 1 John, the the focus is love the brethren. So we're going to focus on what it looks like to love the brethren. And the most natural application to what I'm going to be teaching about over these next several weeks will actually be this church. When I'm teaching you what loving the brethren looks like, what I'm teaching you to do is interact with one another. And then that will pour out into other believers. That will pour out into loving your neighbor as yourself. That will pour out into those. But the most natural and focused application of 1 John, love the brethren, is this group right here. Now, as we close today, we have a little bit of thinking to do. I haven't dug directly into the commands. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has already sorted out in your heart some misplaced priorities or some missing priorities or how to go about doing this. Perhaps simply the reminder that all men are our neighbors in this season of giving is one that you needed to hear. Rooted in the reality of the greatest gift that was given to us in the person of Jesus Christ himself. We can be additionally aware, perhaps, and intentional of the opportunities that exist all around us to invest in those in need. And if nothing else, may God this week position our hearts to receive from him that which is to come from the various passages and topics on their brethren. And may God give us the 
insight to position ourselves to be ready to do good as we have opportunity unto all men, but especially unto them that are of the household of faith. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.